Hey everyone, before this podcast begins, we want to tell you about some other arts-related podcasts you're going to love. They are The Conduit Music Podcast, Artsville, Gringo and the Man, Art World Horror Stories, and Not Real Art. On these action-packed podcasts, you'll hear experts talk about creativity, design, the music biz, the art world, visual art, American craft, Chicano art, street art, graffiti, and even stand-up comedy. So be sure to find and follow these great arts podcasts today. Now, back to your regularly scheduled programming. Warning, the Not Real Art Podcast is intended for creative audiences only. The Not Real Art Podcast celebrates creativity and creative culture worldwide. It contains material that is fresh, fun and inspiring and is not suitable for boring old art snobs. Now, let's get started and enjoy the show. Greetings and salutations, my creative brothers and sisters. Welcome to the Not Real Art Podcast, where we celebrate creative culture and the artists who make it. I'm your host, Sourdough, coming to you from Crew West Studio in Los Angeles. Man, do we have a cool program for you all today. I have no doubt you will learn, grow, and be inspired by today's show. Before we get into our main event, I want to thank you for tuning in. Please be sure to like this episode and subscribe. Your likes and follows help ensure you won't miss any of our new shows, and it makes the algorithm gods happy, which helps us. So thanks for that. Also, be sure to visit our website, notrealart.com. Sign up for our newsletter to keep your finger on the pulse of everything we're doing here at Not Real Art for artists and our lovers. A lot of great stuff there. On the website, you'll see you'll get uh, free educational videos. You can sign up for our artist grant for the chance to receive $2,000. You can buy affordable original contemporary art through our partnership with Sugar Press. And you can become a supporter through Patreon if you want. So be sure to check out our website today for all the good, healthy stuff we got for you. Okay, friends, today's proof that this podcast is going places. We're moving up in the world. This is a milestone day. The Not Real Art Podcast will never be the same because today we have our first Emmy Award winning artist. Yes, you heard me, Emmy Award winning. So buckle up, sit down, grab a drink, get ready because this one's a special one. We have the Senior Vice President of Development and Production for Red Rock Films, the one and only Shannon Malone, Dub Benedictus. And Shannon recently won, and her team won this Emmy. Her team included James Cameron and Sigourney Weaver. My God, it doesn't get bigger or better than that. For their incredible new docuseries, Secrets of the Whale, streaming now on Disney+. Plus. If you haven't seen it, you got to check it out. It's incredible. It's a beautiful look at whale culture around the world. It took three years to make, and they recently won the Emmy for their work. It's incredibly gorgeous. You've probably seen their work on other places as well in terms of channels like Nat Geo, Discovery Communication. Certainly, if you're a wildlife person or if you like documentary films like I do, you've probably seen their work because that's what they specialize in, this kind of educational, documentary, wildlife-oriented content. Beautiful stuff. This project, Secrets of the Whale, is just stunning. So I'm so grateful Shannon took the time to come through today. So without further ado, let's get into this and hear from our first Emmy award-winning artist from Red Rock Films, the one and only Senior Vice President of Development and Production, the one and only Shannon Malone de Benedictus. So Shannon, you know I love you. We're old friends. And we go way back and you'll always be Shannon Malone to me because, of course, that's how I met you. But I went to public school, as you know, and I'm going to screw this up. You've recently got married. What's your married name now? Shannon Malone de Benedictus. It's a now, mouthful. It's uh, a mouthful. It, is, it is a sexy name, by the way. I, you scored. You so scored. And you also scored, my friend, winning an Emmy. An Emmy. You are now an Emmy award winning documentary filmmaker. Congratulations. Thank you. It's nuts. It's nuts. Never, never, ever expected anything like that ever to happen. I don't take it terribly seriously. Don't get me wrong. I love the honor of it, but I've also brought it to Girl Scout meetings. It's not in my bathroom. It is down here because it does help <laughs> in this new video meeting world. Don't get me wrong. I got to keep it around. Yeah. You know, it's kind of cool. It's really, really cool. 
Well, it's always an honor, right, to be honored by your peers, let alone your industry, and to be best in class on anything is obviously an honor and a wonderful thing. But, you know, that being said, your journey, like a lot of people, has taken some time. It's taken some years. And, you know, I think a lot of people, you know, we sort of live in a culture of instant gratification. We sort of live in a time where people think if they Google it, they're experts, and they watch a YouTube video too, they're experts. And yet you, my friend, like so many artists, like so many successful people, you know, it's not been a straight line. It's not been from straight point A to point B. I mean, you graduated from SCAD, Savannah College of Art and Design, with a filmmaking degree, correct? Or was it editing? I forget. It was video art with few credits short of also a double degree in art history. Yeah. Okay. So, right. So you graduate art school with your fancy art degree. Mm -hmm. And then, of course, you promptly go to work in an office (laughs) or something, right? I mean, yeah, of course. Of course. And it was in the arts. I mean, I think, as I recall, like, that's how we met because this was way back in Chicago in the early 90s for a company called Mac Temps, which I think is now called Aquent. And you and I met there and you rose to be regional manager and all of this, leaving your film career behind only to go back into filmmaking later in life, right? Because you left Aquin and then you moved to DC, if I recall, and correct me if I'm wrong, and then you started working for Red Rock. Is that correct? No, no. So I graduated in 92. And if people remember, that was during the first Bush recession. There was no work whatsoever, none, especially Mm. I'm from Washington, DC in the DC area. I couldn't find any work in anything having to do with video or film or whatever. So, yeah, I got a job at Mac Temps, and my job paid me $17,500 a year. I was a front desk receptionist. (laughs) Go to Vegas. Yeah, let's do it. Let's do it. Um, And actually, it's pretty funny because people don't realize that's how I got into baseball. It's I got into baseball because, which I'm a huge baseball fan. If you look behind me, you'll see a bit of stuff. It's the cheapest place to get beer was the local minor league affiliate had dollar twenty five rolling rocks. And so that's where we go hang out and get drunk because it was the cheapest place to get drunk. You know, it's like that's oh, a fun fact. I did not know that here's fact. baseball. Okay, yeah. great. You know. So after yeah. two years of languishing, I said, let's do grad school and moved to Chicago to go to the School of the Art Institute for video as well, video art, and kept my job with the same company at Mac Temps. I spent a year as the admin and they came to me and said do you want to start this new division called Portfolio? And I said, well, I'm going to grad school. And they're like, well, you can do both. And I said, uh, okay. So I went to school full-time and I launched this new division full-time. And after doing that a year, they said, you know, we think you're really talented. Do you want to be regional manager? And just to say this, I give them credit, but also to just kind of show how fucked up it was, right? <laughs> I mean, it was fucked up. Scott, I was 26 years old, 26 years old and being told, hey, we think you could run a $5 million business. And I was like, oh, okay. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> well, this is this is what you get, right? When when a company gets started in the dorm room at a college by a bunch of drunk Harvard business school kids. You know? Exactly. It was like, okay, she's really talented and smart, and she seems to be able to hold her alcohol at parties. Let's promote her to regional manager. You know, so I did that. And then I moved away from Chicago. And the reason I moved away is not a funny reason, but my mother was suffering from early onset Alzheimer's. And Mm. my siblings and I decided that we were all going to move home to help take care of her. So I had to find a way to get back to the Washington, D.C. area. And Mm -hmm. it would have been a huge step back for me to stay with the company and go to the D.C. office. So I went out drinking with an old high school Mm -hmm. friend of mine. Jay Danner McDonald, got to throw his name out because he's just mm, brother from another out. mother. And we're mm. drinking. And he said, you know, you always were a good editor in college. Why don't you come edit for me? I'm the new nighttime supervisor at Discovery Channel. Right. Discovery. And yes. I said, oh, come on. And he's like, no, no. And we kept drinking. And he said, <laughs> you know, yeah, come on. You know, you can do it. You can do it. I said, okay, okay look, if you're serious, fax me an offer. Facts. I want to make that clear. Facts. Fax me an offer. (laughs) The other F word. The other F word. (laughs) Fax me an offer on Monday morning. And he faxed me an offer. And it was about half of what I was making, but it was the opportunity to get home and help take care of my mom. So I like to say I kind of tripped into getting into television Mm. and what my work was, but life throws you hurdles and you got to find a way to get over them and keep moving forward. 
You've got to adjust. You needed to get home and he gave you that excuse. You also, I'm guessing, knowing you because you are smart and wise, you knew it's like, well, listen, I am making a career shift, an industry shift. Okay, yeah, I'm probably going to have to take a bit of a haircut on the payroll. A lot of people get greedy or get selfish or get arrogant. They don't want to take that haircut. But sometimes that's a sacrifice you have to make to make that shift, to get on a new path. And then, of course, your path led you ultimately to winning an Oscar. Not <laughs> but, an Oscar, an Emmy. But so, I'm, I'm going for I'm the sorry, EGOT. an Emmy, Emmy, excuse me. Well, your Oscar's next. Yeah. I mean, you got an EGOT. You're going to be an EGOT, Lynn I know. and me. We're going to be the EGOT. <laughs> it's going to be Lynn and me. I can see it. <laughs> Yeah. So, right. So discovery. So you're at discovery for how long? I was at discovery for about seven or eight years. And then I went to National Geographic for four. And during that time, like you said, sometimes you got to hopscotch around to kind of find what you're really good at. And I started off mm. as an editor and then I became a predator. So I was doing both, but that wasn't giving me the experience I wanted. So I hopped over to the network side, discovery channel proper, and I mm-hmm. became an associate producer and a producer. When I left Discovery, I was a senior producer. I went over to Nat Geo as a supervising producer and then realized that if I had to direct another voiceover session again in my life, I was going to rip my hair out. It just, Mm. I couldn't imagine doing it. And Mm. there was an opening in show development and it seemed like a good marriage of my two careers. So it was sales and creativity that I learned from my time in Aquin. And then I have been on the Mm -hmm. producing side and been on this side inside a network. And so I went into show development and that's kind of where I've been ever since. What a beautiful thing. Just to be clear, you've been at Red Rock for how many years now? I joined Red Rock at the beginning of 2013. And when Mm -hmm. I joined Red Rock, we were in our president owner's basement, Brian Armstrong. There was three and a half of us. (laughs) <laughs> three and a half. <laughs> well, the reason yeah. I say half is because our amazing head of production, Sari Wiener, she was also doing side work at the same time. But it was like we were scrounging together to try to get it up. We had no sure. projects. We had nothing. And then we got a call from one of Brian's old bosses who said, look, I think we need this. Could you develop something? And we said, yeah, whatever you want. We'll do it. And then I went and had a meeting with a former client of mine who He used to pitch me, and now I was pitching him because this industry is so incredibly small. And we took two ideas, and we came up with our first Shark Week idea at Red Rock. And then it was like, okay, let's just keep going. Last year, you know, we had a new series on Netflix. We won an Emmy. We had a series on Nat Geo. We had shark specials. We had the full gamut. So it takes time. It really takes time. Now, have you, what other projects, because you won your Emmy for Secrets of the Whales, but have you been ever nominated for any of your other projects? Nope. First, wow. First time out, first nom, and you put the ball in the net. Who? No, it. again, totally, totally unexpected. Was the competition that bad? Is that is that really what you're saying? Oh, God, no. <laughs> Actually, look, if you go back and you watch the video and you'll see me and they announce our show. And literally, you see me stand up and then lean out of picture. And the reason was, was because I turned to the table next to me that had Steve James, who did the Chicago series City So Good, right? Yes. And I was like crying, saying, oh, my God, I honestly thought I thought you were going to win. Your series was so good. (laughs) (laughs) I was so ready to cheer for Steve James series because it was just such a great portrait of Chicago. It was an amazing portrait of Chicago. And so what had happened You know, my first instinct was to apologize to the person I thought was going to win it. (laughs) Yeah, that tells you about the gracious, gracious winner, gracious, (laughs) humble winner. I love it. I love it. Wow. I do want to talk a little bit, if not a lot, about the project specifically, Mm -hmm. which seems to me, of course, to have been an epic undertaking. You know, you're all over the world. I kind of want to understand the process Was this something that was pitched to you that you guys took on? Was this something that you developed in-house? I mean, how did it come to you? This was an amazing collaboration of many different parts. So Brian Scarry, the extraordinary photographer and filmmaker, he had been working on a project about whales and whale culture. Mm -hmm, And he mm -hmm. approached Janet Vistering, who's the SVP of development production at Nat Geo Wild, and said... Mm -hmm here, I'm doing this. What do you think? Do you think you can make this into anything? And she said, you know, I think there might be something here. I want to call one of our best collaborators and called Mm. me in, called Red Rock Films in. And so we sat down and had numerous meetings and went through all the research and went through all the theories and came and kind of came back and said, what could be made of this? And we said, you know what? 
we can make a four part series of this. We think there's Mm -hmm. enough meat here to make a really great four part series that was not just about pretty images because in the images, I don't want to dismiss that because the cinematographers just did an extraordinary job. Epic. They're epic. Gorgeous. But it was also just new insight. It was new. The way I like to describe it is, is that science is now allowing us to see the humanity in a lot of wild creatures. And it's just Mm. because we've had blinders on in the past. So we started developing it in conjunction with Nat Geo Wild and with Brian Scary and came up with a proposal to, to film it. And thankfully, everybody got on board. And we started, we outlined how we were going to capture all the material. And I have to say, getting into wildlife filmmaking, it requires the most patience. The patience our DPs and producers have, it's just shocking. Because when you realize that they're going to go out and they're going to spend three, four weeks on an ice flow in Alaska or in northern Canada, and that may generate three minutes of material, that's it. Right, right. And by the way, it may not, right? It may like, not. like you, you may end up, you know, empty handed. Yeah. One of our shoots, we can't control the weather. A storm rolled in and the right. whales, just like us, they don't really, they don't like being around. Damn, it's, it's a horrible day, <laughs> you know? So, yeah. so it's yeah. that. So we put the process in and then we started coming back with rushes. And the great news was, was that Janet saw it and said, you know, there's something special here. And she ran it up the flagpole and the execs at Disney said, wait, there's something special here. And James Cameron was brought on board and he said, there's something special here. And so we then continue to push forward. And that's how it kind of all came about. But it was a long, long process. And it truly is when I think I've said a few times, it takes an army to put something like this together. It takes a damn army to put this together. This is not an easy undertaking at all. No, not at all. Yeah, you can assemble the world's greatest army, but still you got to have a lot of luck on your side to bring it all together. Because at the end of the day, right, like you said, weather, you know, mother nature, I mean, she's such a fickle bitch. I mean, you know, like at the end of the day, you may not get that shot. So all these moving parts had to come together with a lot of love and luck. And then you stick the landing, which is like literally a miracle. It's a miracle, but I don't want to take away the accomplishment also of what the producers did and everybody is It's also just a lot of research. And part of that is we partner with and promote scientists all over the world Mm -hmm. who Mm -hmm. they've dedicated their lives filming these animals, tracking these animals, getting to know them. And so that increases your odds. That increases the thing of they say, you know what? I know this pod usually shows up around these two weeks blank because 10 years of research show that. And we're out there and we're just highlighting the work that they do. And I got to say, I got to be thankful to the whales because, I mean, <laughs> maybe they knew something. I don't know. But they, man, well, yeah, they're a bunch of, well, it turns out whales are a bunch of hams. They just love, they love, you know, oh, getting their photo taken. That's so yeah. cool. That's so cool. So I want to hit on a couple of different things because you said a word that I think was such a key word because as I watched it, it was a word that jumped out at me because what I realized as I was watching is like, no, no, this is a show about culture, whale culture. It's not like I see all the wildlife documentaries. I don't, but it's this idea that we're documenting. It's not just about, oh, we're going to peep in on a day in the life of a lion. I mean, it's like, no, at the end of the day, you guys were really studying their lifestyle, their culture, and we could empathize with them. And then the connection between, well, us and them, you know, because at the end of the day, a lot of human beings don't want to admit we're animals, but we're animals, (laughs) Mm -hmm. right? And and we don't have, you know, maybe we're not that different, at the end of the day. But that was the thing that came back for me again and again. It's like, no, no, we're, we're actually studying culture here. Yeah. For years, the idea of attributing culture or attributing things that are what would be considered human kind of traits was a big no-no. It was a huge no-no. But it also, in that, it ignored some basic science. You know, just from a basic biological thing, you've talked about we're animals. Yeah, we are animals and we have a nervous system and we have thought processes and a brain. And so you look at another mammal who has the same nervous type of nervous system and the same type of brain structure. What's to say that suddenly they don't have that same type of potential? So you kind of look at that just from an evidentiary standpoint, you know, look at that and go, wait, hold on a second. But also just particularly with whales, it's been so hard to study them because they're underwater. But when you see creatures like orcas, where you have a pod in Alaska or a pod in Washington state, and all they eat is salmon, and then you go down to the pod who's hanging out in Argentina, 
and that pod only eats seal. So one's only eating mammals and one is only eating fish. And if you try to blend those two, if you take a, one of these orcas and move them to the other territory, it will not eat. That's cultural mm. learning. That is not just instinct. That is a cultural learning process. And we even, you know, discovered with the sperm whales is that the language that like sperm whale pods are speaking in Dominica is different mm. from the island of Dominica and the Caribbean is different from the language that they're speaking in the Azores of Portugal. That was so mind blowing to me. Yeah. I mean, that's just like, what? You know, it's completely, <laughs> what? You know, and look, my personal favorite, the one I like the most yeah. is that the fact that belugas, here's this creature that looks like it's smiling all the time. It's just got this goofy <laughs> look on its face and everything like that. And it turns its head. I mean, it's so and it cool. Turns it's its sort head, of, yeah. It does yeah. all this stuff <laughs> and stuff. It's just so cute, you know, but that they come back every summer, every mm. summer to hang out, mm. which mm. for me, being from a huge ash Irish Catholic family with over 40 first cousins and stuff, you know, <laughs> we look forward to everybody getting together. So this idea yes. that they come together as part of learning and getting to know each other, like, oh, hey, mate, how you doing? Oh, I haven't seen you in ages and stuff. So it really is just this kind of amazing insight into mm. these creatures. And in my opinion, this is my opinion, just want to make mm. that clear, is the more that we can see and identify those things in creatures, the more we're going to want to protect them, the more we're going to want to take care of them. And it's easy to kind of take a blind eye and push them away and say, well, they're just animals. But when you come to realize that they mourn their dead and they're, they're friendly and they become friends and they meet this and they work together collectively, it kind of gives you a new perspective. And I think it's great information to help people care more. I had to chuckle when James at the end was saying like, yeah, he's like, they're having a party. They're gossiping. They're coming together. They haven't seen each other in a year and they're coming together to gossip and catch up on the news, you know? Yep. It's very social. Totally social. You know, when the humpback whales gather to do the bubble net feeding up in Alaska, these mm. are not relatives. These are whales who've seen each other, got to know each other years past and come together. And you can't help mm. but think of that really old Monty Python sketch from Meaning of Life. I'm like, hello. Hello, all the fish kind of swimming in the tank. <laughs> yes, you know, oh, look, yes, Harold's yes. being eaten. It's kind of like that. They're like, oh, hey, yeah. how you doing, mate? You know, the whole thing. So right, right. it's just incredible. It's really, really incredible. It felt like there was a lot of drone usage in this project. Is that correct? Mm -hmm. The perspectives and the footage and the, just the production values off the chart, but it was really cool. I mean, how great is it, right, that we have this technology that you can deploy in the field like that? How far it's come. It's just amazing. I just came from mm. a shoot. I'm working on a project right now about the manatee die-off in Florida. And we had a just a basic kind of drone. You know, it was a good drone. And the footage we got from the Indian River Lagoon is just extraordinary. So the thing about the drones that makes it really, really helpful is, first off, you get the perspective. You get to look. And we can see kind of how large these animals are and be able to capture it. But also... We have certain ethics that we want to follow and that we don't want to startle the animals. We don't want to get too close. We want to make sure that we're capturing them in natural behavior and not interfering. Drones allow us to capture that footage and not get in their way. Also, you'll notice in a lot of the shoots, our underwater cinematographers, very rarely did we use scuba gear because bubbles disturb whales. And these are things we take into consideration. If you startle an animal or you do things, we don't want to harm them. We're in their habitat. So we want to respect them. Well, and you want to get as natural of a behavior as possible, right? And as soon Absolutely. as you start inserting those bubbles or whatever that are very unnatural, it's like you're not going to capture that magic. Yeah. And I'm not saying that it was all the time, but because like when right. the male orca got caught up in the net, we put someone in the water to help yes, put the male yes. orca. As was the right thing to do, of course. Yeah. yeah, yeah. You know, Scott, I've got to tell you, there was controversy about that. And it's it's because... seriously. Oh, what yeah. was the controversy? Because wildlife filmmaking is, we're there to document the realities of nature. And sometimes that's absolutely horrible. And I, for one, it's not a hidden secret, but I do a lot of these wildlife films, but I hate predation. So for me, it's really hard. It's absolutely hard to kind of see this. But with that, here was this male, it was suffering, and it was suffering because of a man-made thing. And mm -hmm. so they made a decision to not let nature take its course because it wasn't nature taking its course. It was something mm -hmm. that humans had inflicted on the animal and decided yep. to get involved. 
And some people gave us some backlash on it. And we were like, well, I mean, at the end of the day, right, that was a no win situation because you were damned if you did, damned if you didn't. I mean, if you didn't, there'd be equal people saying, oh, you should have, you know, so fuck them. No, that's you know, exactly. I mean, again, did the right thing. no regrets yeah. on our decision. I'm totally fine with my decision. Yeah, right, <laughs> absolutely right. fine with I just, decision. I just love how mankind knows best, you know. Anyway, it is such a, and I was going to ask about that too, because I personally, I was grateful that you did that because I was like wondering, it's like, oh, how's this going to go? But what a scary thing, too, is he's coming up, but that also shows maybe the intelligence of these animals because the animal probably knew, the orca probably knew that he was going to help. You know, he's like, okay, I'm just going to sit here and be still. You know, you know, orcas are arguably the smartest creatures in the ocean. Mm. They are unbelievably intelligent. And it's a really good thing that they don't see us as a threat. Mm, mm. <laughs> There's an incredible scientist activist in New Zealand named Ingrid Visser. We've worked with her before on orcas. And, you know, she said killer whales have great whites for lunch. And she's absolutely mm. right. <laughs> she's mm. absolutely right. So, so the good news is with that male orca is that, yeah, they don't see us as prey. They don't see us as a threat. And thank God that they do because they're extraordinary creatures, really extraordinary. So one of the things that I loved about the series was, of course, Sigourney Weaver. I mean, come on, you can't get better than Sigourney Weaver. But <laughs> more than that, I don't know if this is accurate or not, but for whatever reason, watching the series for me as a kid that grew up with the Wild Kingdom in the 70s or whatever, it sort of harkened back to that sort of classic storytelling natural history or wildlife kind of storytelling. I don't know if that was, I don't know if that's accurate or not, but at least it brought back Watching your show sort of brought back some very fond memories watching these wildlife films growing up. So Sigourney and I had worked together before. I had worked with her back in 2006 on the U.S. version of Planet Earth. And I directed her sessions with my incredible mentor and colleague, Maureen Lemire. And we were under the gun to get everything done. So Sigourney and I ended up basically spending like Thanksgiving week together and Thanksgiving together at a recording studio. What she's so amazing at is bringing the emotion to the table. And mm, she's just, mm. she's just fantastic about it. And here's time for a funny story. So while we're working on planet earth, there's a scene where it's about the polar bear and the polar bear is desperately trying to eat. He can't find anything to eat and it gets in a conflict with the walrus and he doesn't succeed and he gets gouged by the walrus's uh, tusk. And subsequently the polar bear dies. So I'm directing her and she's reading it and she finishes the bite and there's a pause and she goes, Shannon, how was that take? And I went, I'm sorry. This scene always makes me cry. I'm so sorry. <laughs> <laughs> I do. I had seen the scene by this point, like nine times <laughs> right, and I'm still right, bawling right. every single time. She got you. And she goes, she goes, <laughs> she goes, Oh my God, it's going to make me cry too. Oh my God. <laughs> so we're both like totally, you know, totally reclaimed yeah. the whole deal. So flash forward, it was just a fabulous experience. Flash forward to her working on this and we were talking about who could bring the right tone to this. We went to Geo and we said, who could we bring this? We put together a list, but really on the list is we had Sigourney. And we said, Shannon's worked with her before. I think she'd just be extraordinary on this. And thankfully, everybody was like, yes, let's do it. Let's go get Sigourney. We set up a meeting to chat about it. Hadn't seen her, of course, since 2006. And we get on the phone and we start talking on a video call. And she goes, so do you remember when we started crying over the polar bear thing? And I'm like, oh, yeah, okay. She remembers. And she's not like not wanting to work with me ever again. Thank God. Right. You know, right, the right. whole deal. So she just brings that. She brings that thing where you just, you feel it in your heart and you feel it. And that's what we really wanted to do. We wanted people to really get emotionally invested. And Scott, like you, I watched all those things when I was a kid. And I'm still terribly scarred by a, a documentary I saw that was about flamingos trying to make it away across a drought and watching them die one by one. And I remember being eight years old, crying hysterically, sitting in my older sister's lap and being like, oh my God, I can't believe this is happening. So, and it stuck with me. And I'm not saying I want to make little kids cry. That is not what I want to do. <laughs> I don't want to make them cry, but I want people <laughs> to feel that emotion. I want them to care. And yeah. she's just able to do it. And then the writing of Brian Armstrong and Andy Mitchell, they're amazing writers to bring out just enough to make people feel it. It's, it wasn't overwritten. It wasn't underwritten. It was just enough to really kind of get them to kind of feel it in their bones. And so 
I'm glad that you felt that way because that's seriously kind of what we wanted to do is we really wanted people to come away with an emotional experience as well as go, damn, whales are cool. Yeah. Well, and I mean, listen, I mean, what do I know? But I mean, arguably what we're talking about right now is one of the perhaps many reasons why you won the Emmy because you're hearkening back to some of this classic, these classic attributes or whatever. But I mean, in your own mind, in your own opinion, what about this project rose to that level? Why, in your own opinion, why do you think you guys won the Emmy and beat the competition? I think there were two contributing factors because we were up against some really tough competition. And I've even said that there was another project that I, I was yep. so blown away by and thought was amazing. But I think there was not only was it just incredibly well done and the cinematography and the writing and the narration and everything came together to make an extraordinary experience. But I think that COVID and being trapped in your house and being mm. isolated really kind of brought forth the need we all have for community and our loved ones. Mm. And mm. I had a situation a year into COVID and suddenly was like, I need to go see my sister. I need to go see my family. You know, I need to be around the people who love and know me. And a series that highlighted that, that highlighted these animals who need each other and support each other, really, I think, hit that chord that people really are feeling internally that we've experienced and we were denied and then suddenly we're faced with how much we need it. And add to that is I think that there's been a huge support and new renaissance of wildlife filmmaking and people taking wildlife filmmaking seriously. And nothing was more evident than a few months earlier when My Octopus Teacher won for Best Documentary, got the Oscar for Best Documentary. I have to say, I mean, I've seen in my career hundreds upon hundreds of wildlife documentaries. And that one, it hits you, it hit you in the gut. And it showed how precious life is and how in this time when we're taken away and things are happening and people weren't able to see loved ones when they were dying and doing this, that you got to hold those things that you love close and you have to respect it and you have to cherish it. And so I think that's what really struck a nerve for people. I think it really connected with people on that. And I said this in another interview. I had two compliments that really meant the most to me. Not yours means a lot, Scott. Don't get me wrong. I love you. Love you. you, know, you know <laughs> oh, that. I know. I know. Of course. You know, you know that. Course. Right. But, you know, I had a former curator for the National Park Service come to me. And the only reason I know the former curator from the National Park Service is he is my Section 316 buddy in my Washington National season ticket holder plan. So, <laughs> Bob, <laughs> right? But he said to there me... There you go. Hey, Bob, shout out. There you go, Bob. Is he said to me that he's seen other things, but this was a show, series that finally he thought brought it full circle. He said he brought it mm. all the emotion and everything in there to show how wonderful they were. And I'm like, Bob's a curator for the National Park Service. He knows it. He's good. Yeah. And the second one was from my four-year-old neighbor mm -hmm. who watched right. it. And she came to yeah. me and said, I love whales now. Thank you. So that's it. That's, yeah, it. that's what that's I think. That's it. Bottom line. Bottom yeah. line. I think it's safe to say that you're the only one hearing this right now or listening or engaged in this conversation that has ever won an Emmy. Maybe perhaps some of our audience members have won Emmys. I, I don't know. Yeah. But take us to that moment. I mean, my God, I mean, you were already in disbelief. They announce your name. You stand up. You're expecting your neighbor at the other table to win. Yep. They call your name. You stand up. You're apologizing to your colleague or something like that, you know? <laughs> so so you, you're having this imposter syndrome or whatever it's called when you're in disbelief that you're that good or that honored. And so you have to then go accept the award. You have to maybe make a speech. I mean, take us to that moment. What is that like? It must be a very surreal, out-of-body experience. I mean, how were you feeling? First, when they were reading it, we were nominated for three separate awards. We were nominated for Best Doc Series, VoiceOver, and Cinematography. And when we didn't mm. win VoiceOver and Cinematography, we were like, no, we're done. We're fine. Let's just enjoy yeah, it. Right. And I remember sitting in the audience and being like, 
I'm going to sit very proper and have a really good posture and make sure I don't have resting bitch face at all ever on this in case the camera <laughs> lands on me. And in fact, I had a moment right. with Titus Burgess. He and I had a moment where he came out and I was smiling and applauding for him. And he made eye contact and we were kind of like this because I was like, like, hell, is a camera going to land on me and I'm going to look like a sourpuss bitch face type of thing. So I was like cheery and happy, which is not yes. my normal state, but damn it, I was going to do it. You know. <laughs> So they make the announcements and the whole deal and they get it and they make and they say secrets of the whales and literally everybody at the table just kind of, oh my God. I mean, it was complete shock, just complete yeah. flabbergast the whole deal. And so then I've got to get out of these little seats, which I'm an ample sized woman. So I'm in this little kind of cocktail seat trying to shove my giant ass in this little tiny seat and get out of its narrow space. I apologize to my table, you know, to Steve James, because he's just a, such an extraordinary filmmaker. And I've, you know, respected him and admired him for decades. And I start to walk up the stage and I'm shaking and I'm going, okay. And then my next thought is, dear God, don't trip up the stairs because I am wearing the <laughs> tiniest of heels. But as Scott knows, I don't wear heels. I am your, <laughs> I'm your sporty spice gal, right? Yes, yes, yes. So yes. I'm trying not to trip. Also thinking, trying to also keep in mind that I'm wearing so much support Spanx. But I have to go to the bathroom, but there's no chance in hell I'm going to be able to do that at least for another hour or two, <laughs> right? Because right. it's just not possible. So I yes. climb up the stairs and immediately I'm thinking, this is my one moment to tell Nicole Byer how much I love her <laughs> because Nicole Byer is sitting in the front row of the microphone. So I get up and I see her and we make eye contact and I point at her and I go, mm -hmm. I love you. I love you. <laughs> and she goes, Oh, that's so sweet. <laughs> and I was like, okay, I told Nicole Byer, Holy shit. I have won an Emmy. <laughs> I am someone who went, I went to public school. I am from like the depths of suburbia. I haven't finished paying off my student loans. And even though I am <laughs> yeah. 51 years old, mm. holy shit. <laughs> right? <laughs> I can do this. So we got up there and we're holding hands. And Brian Scarry, you know, who had the original idea, who came up with the book, we said, you know, he should make the speech. So he gave the speech sure. and thanked everybody. And then we walked backstage. And I remember grabbing Brian Armstrong, my partner, president of the company, mm -hmm. and hugging him because... We had been working on this for over three years. I mean, this had yeah. been such a part of our journey at this point. And oh, my God. Oh, my God. Never in our wildest dreams did we imagine that something like this would happen. So then they give you the statue, which is really fucking heavy. Oh, my God. You can punch <laughs> somebody with this. It is so goddamn yeah. heavy. And you're like, oh, oh, you know, so doing that. And then we Carry, did the carrying it around all night. Yeah. Yeah. You're, you're kind of yeah. like this. And you're kind of, <laughs> oh my God, you know, and the whole deal. And my, my mer I'm in heels and I'm still trying to not go to the bathroom. Right. And so we then give our little speeches independently for the recording and get our photo taken. And then this is the most surreal part. By that point, they had awarded the final two. And so we went to go back to our table and literally they were saying, all right, everybody get out. Go on, get out. We have our next awards session. Everybody needs to get out immediately. So we had like literally no time to socialize, to do anything, to even comprehend. We had enough time to go back, grab my purse that I had left on the table, and yeah. then we were chased out the door. <laughs> out with you. Yeah, you're gone. Congratulations. Get out. Yeah, get congratulations. Out. You win. Now get out. So then we had the four block walk, three block walk back to the hotel. Mm -hmm. I'm in heels. <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> Gotta pee. <laughs> gotta pee. I'm in heels and my face is just sweating off, but I'm still kind of like astonished. So yeah. I said, I need to call my husband. Let's call Steve. So just to tell a little bit about Steve is Steve is a financial analyst. He, the thing that I fell in love with him is he really wasn't that blown away by what I do. He was just kind of like, <laughs> right. oh, this is what you do. And so it was, it was just kind of like, okay. So I pick up the phone and I call him and he picks up the phone and he goes, Hey, what's up? I said, were you asleep? <laughs> he goes, yeah, yeah. I was, I said, you were watching the red zone, right? You weren't watching my ceremony. Were you? He goes, yeah, I was watching the red zone. What's up? What's up? <laughs> I said, honey, we won. And he goes, what? <laughs> 
Oh, husbands, so oh, men. <laughs> I said, we won the big award. He's like, honey, that's so great. I said, it is. I love you. Okay, go back to Red yeah. Zone. <laughs> yeah, I'm going to go party. <laughs> he went back to Red Zone and everything. So it was, a, it was a very, very surreal moment. But, you know, like you said, I mean, I went to public school. Nobody in my family's in the arts at all. I come from a family of lawyers, and I still was paying off student loans at that point. Went to college on grants and student loans, you know, because my family had no money. And then here I was winning an Emmy. So it was a completely, needless to say, I did not own a formal gown. I had to go buy a formal gown because that's mm-hmm. not something that I happen to have hanging in my closet, you know, so. Well, I mean, but kind of the bigger point you're getting at also is on some level about, because I've known you for so long, maybe it's easy for me to say, but it's like, you're not the kind of person, I don't think. That when I knew you back in Chicago, back then, wasn't you weren't saying, oh, someday I'm going to win an Emmy. Like, there were no aims. You've just always been about the work and doing good work and delivering great value and great service and great. And you bring that ethos to Red Rock. And with this project, again, you had no clue you were going to win. You just wanted to make the best thing, you know, just the best product you can make. And this is the benefit of hard work. Sometimes you get honored. Sometimes your colleagues in your industry honor you with awards like this. And, you know, but, but the bigger point is that it's about the work, man. Yeah. It's about the work. Yeah. And I mean, this project as any project, you work your ass off and you're only as good as your most recent project. I mean, there, yeah, sure. There's a cachet of now you can say, Hey, I'm an Emmy winner, but I mean, you still got to put in the really hard work and yeah. The fact that this aired more than a year ago, and I can still spew so many facts about whales, that's how much research and how much things that go into it that you Mm -hmm, just mm -hmm. have to like work your ass off. And I look, I appreciate the comments, Scott. I like to think that's the way I am. That's how I want to be. I'm someone who, for better or for worse, uh, tends not to be awed by celebrity. I'm not awed by by that, I'm awed by incredible work and people who do good. That's kind of more who I am. Now, look, if Chris Hemsworth said I want to hang out, hell yeah, I'm not stupid. <laughs> you know, I'm not, I'm like, come on, I'm still a Go woman. On. You know, uh, come you're on. You're still a human being. <laughs> yeah, if Charlize Theron wanted to hang out, same thing. I'm still, yeah, I'm still a human. <laughs> yeah, I'm still a woman. Right. Don't get me wrong. But it's something that you work hard. I just want to work hard and treat people fairly and do a good job mm. and recognize the people who do really good work. And that's how I feel like I've been from the beginning, from the art when I did art. And before that is recognizing talent. Scott, I recognized your talent at a very young age. You were always <laughs> incredibly creative. You're always incredibly good at recognizing the hidden gifts that people have and, and promoting them. You would bring me artists and say, look at this person. I'd be blown away by their portfolio. I'd be blown away by everything that they had. You've always recognized people's, people's abilities. Again, not because of what they bring to the table but exactly right. the talent that they bring. Yeah, well, thank you for that. No, I just, I mean, back in those days, I remember basically the, it was quite simple. It was just like, wait a minute, does this work? Does this artwork, does this design, does this portfolio make me say, wow? Yeah. If it did, like, that was a good sign. <laughs> it wasn't like there was a major calculus. It was like, oh, yeah, wow, yeah, that's good. All right, let me go show Shannon. <laughs> yeah, I gave a talk once at SCAD. They asked me to talk about stuff and, Someone said, well, if you have talent, don't worry, you'll get work. And I'm like, no, that's not the case at all. Mm, no, I said, not you, true at all. you have to be able to work with people. You have to be able yeah, to kind of yeah. do that because so much of it is you can't work in a vacuum. You can't just sit there right. and do that. And I, I got in a discussion with a guy who was an animator and he said, look, you know, my feeling, if you can't, you know, if you, if you just have really good talent, that's all I need. I said, so you want an animator who can draw really well or who's really good in doing the computer programming, but can't communicate their ideas or can't communicate effectively to you that's okay? And he goes, yeah, no. And I said, See, that's what I mean. You still have right. to, to work with people and appreciate the talents people have. Yeah. Going back. I mean, I remember vividly learning back in those days, it carries through to this day. It's like, listen, talent is one thing. Attitude and ego is another. Give me the talented person who's humble and down to earth and a nice person versus mm-hmm. the talented asshole who I'm going to have to deal with their ego. Fuck that guy. <laughs> you know what I mean, I want to work with the person over here who's equally talented, but is actually, you know, a nice person. One of the tip off things that I have a lot is I have young people who think that they come in and they really suck up to me. 
that it's going to work, you know, that's going to do something. And I've had young people or even not even just young people, but they're like, I just love your work. Your work is amazing. Your work is just better than everybody's. I think you're at a different <laughs> level than everybody's compared to all those other shows that are on TV or on Discovery or TLC. And I just want to tell you that I think that you guys are just so much better. And I want to work for a company who's like much better level than that. And I always pause and I go, you know, I think Naked and Afraid is one of the best things I've ever seen on television. <laughs> and and I like right. the Jackass movies. And if someone came to me <laughs> yes. and said, we need you to do the best of Dateline, I would do the best of Dateline, right? <laughs> I'd say there is, there is storytelling and there's ability to go in all those things. There's elements in there that make those things successful. And when you identify that, you do that. So don't come at me and try to convince me I'm the new Fred Wiseman. Fred Wiseman's Fred Wiseman. I admire Fred Wiseman or, or Joe Boranger or whatever. They are geniuses. I want to do good work. And if the good work ranges from the best of Dateline, which Dateline, I'm in awe of what they do, to yes. doing per- Secrets of the Whales. More power to me. That's yeah. what I want to stop. Do. Stop kissing my ass, would you? Please. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I Please. I see right through it. This is, this is not my first time at the rodeo, but I do have to say, quick aside, you mentioned Jackass. Of course, we have this in common. And fun fact, you may or may not know. So my daughter happens to go to school with Jeff Tremaine's son. Really? And so Jeff and I have become friendly. And so the new Jackass movie recently came out and Jeff was nice enough to invite all the parents of fourth grade to go see this private screening of his new Jackass movie. And of course, I laughed my ass off the whole time. And Jeff said to me, he goes, man, I need to take you to every screening. He's like, you know, you <laughs> it's like you laughed the whole time. He's like, and, and I think a lot of parents were not familiar with the Jackass brand. <laughs> and it was like quite interesting, right? Anyway, so, but I asked Jeff, I'm like, well, how are you feeling about the show? And he's like, man, he's like, I'm really, I'm not so sure. I'm like, what do, what do you mean? It, you know, it's fucking great. I thought he goes, yeah, man. He goes, the critics are liking it. He goes, he goes, and that's not good. <laughs> he goes, he goes I, he's like, I'm not so sure I'm punk rock anymore. You know, if the critics are liking what I'm doing, you know, very, very, very funny. Anyway, so. One of the cool things about working at Red Rock, working on these incredible projects, I would think, is the opportunity to travel and go to these amazing, beautiful places. Please tell me that you're able to get on a plane and go to exotic locales. Well, I'm the first one to say that for me, camping is like the Hampton Inn. Um, so it's that's camping. <laughs> More of a glamper. Yeah, okay, gotcha. I, I, I've been yeah. glamping. I like glamping. Glamp, yeah, glamping's glamping's all, good. Yeah, glamping's yeah, awesome. Yeah. But I do sometimes get to go, but I have people who are so talented. Again, they're just amazing. When you have producers and DPs fighting to go camp for four weeks on an ice floe in northern Canada. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I'm like, oh yeah, guys, go. You're totally fine. But I, I've been really <laughs> fortunate to go film sharks in New Zealand and orcas and be in the water yeah. with orcas, swam with sharks in Bahamas. I've been a lot of places in this. Which is why country. you're missing your right arm, but that's a whole nother podcast. It's okay. It's fine. It's fine. <laughs> honestly, honestly, lemon sharks are just like cats. Just as long as you don't look like food, you're fine. They're totally fine. <laughs> but, um, but, you know, again, so I've, I've had a real great opportunity to kind of travel. We just had a shoot. Again, we go to Bahamas, we go to Dominica, we go to Australia, we go to Florida, you know, all these different places. But we had a shoot at a distillery in Scotland, and we were all fighting to go to that shoot, right? Yeah. And finally, <laughs> Brian and I were like, oh, we're going to the shoot. No, <laughs> this course. is what I have to go and oversee this distillery shoot in Scotland. Yeah. It's important. Yes. <laughs> we want to make sure that it's Critically right. Critically important. So Vital. People are like, why are you here? And it's like, well, this is an important shoot at this whiskey distillery. Yeah, we had to we had to do this. Yeah. The thing that I like so much is I have been able to meet some just really wonderful, amazing people. It's ranged from the former theater director of the National Theater of Denmark to a very poor family who don't have indoor plumbing, having tea with them in the slums of Beijing. Mm, Yeah, yeah. It's the people I meet in general. Almost everybody I meet is kind, kind and nice and willing to mm. make friends. And I really, really like that. So, yeah, I've been lucky to have that. So I have a confession because in recent years and I have I'm very happy with the trajectory of my career and my life. So I'm no complaints. But looking back, knowing what I know now, I think if I was going to make a different decision, I would have become a documentary filmmaker. 
My wife teases me. She says, you will watch a documentary about paint drying. You know what I mean? And I will. Like, I just, I, I love getting that inside baseball, you know, a deep dive behind the scene, whatever, reality, dose of reality. So I envy you. I envy the fact that uh, not only are you making incredible documentaries, but in fact, you're also making important ones about our natural world, which people need to know. It's an art form I really appreciate. It's just, you know. It's nice. It's painful, though. People don't become super. It's, you know, well, there's no money in it. There's no money in it. <laughs> yeah, it's like, let's be clear. This is not for the bank account. You know? No. You talk about like weird trajectory. My undergrad degree was in video art, sculpture, single channel art pieces. Who majors in an art form you can't sell? I mean, what the hell? You know, what a stupid idea. Well, no, no, but that's why you double majored in art history. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> yeah. There's the money. Let's do that. That was the, you know, that was the, the plan B. <laughs> the money play, you know, and then, yeah. and then let's go get your master's degree in art and video. Yeah, art. Right. Yeah, seriously. <laughs> God, what was I thinking? You know, but the one class I didn't take in either undergrad or grad, I did not take documentary filmmaking. It's so funny. People are like, you must have wanted to do this from the very beginning. I'm like, no, I actually avoided that class. I didn't really <laughs> want right. to do documentary filmmaking. So when I landed in documentary filmmaking, the thing was, though, is that if you could see around my office right now, my basement, you know, which mm. is just a disaster other than what's behind me, is I have all these movie posters around. I've always been a fan of television and movies. Always. Mm. Every year I look forward to Turner Classic Movies, 30 Days of Oscar, so I can get caught up on all the classic movies and things. So when I got into this, what I realized was it's still just about telling a great story. Yeah. You just need to tell a great story. What's going to be something that's really appealing? And so many documentaries are able to kind of tap into that. What's that unusual hook that you think you can really get to get into and things. And so that's it. You know, I'm still telling a story, you know, in my spare time, I watch people said, well, you really like true crime documentaries. I don't. But the reason I watch true crime is because true crime are always trying to find a new way to tell the story. Yeah, right. So it's not the same thing. You know, person gets angry, person kills somebody, boom, that's it. It's what's that new angle. So I watch it. I also watch a shit ton of adult animation. Bob's Burgers, The Great North, Rick and Morty. <laughs> My husband's like Futurama. He's like, oh, dear God, are we going to watch another <laughs> animated show? I'm like, yes, this is what I like. This is yes. totally what I'm into. So... It's still that story. So what's that really cool, engaging story that you're going to tell? And that's how I end up in documentaries. That's exactly how it ended up that way. That's so cool. I think you would have been a good documentary filmmaker because Aww. you can connect to people. You know how to bring stuff Thank out. Thank you. Thanks and, for that. And Scott, the one thing you have, which is what you have to have, is you have to be curious. You mm. have to constantly be learning things and yeah. constantly doing this. And I can say as a creative, one of the most difficult things for me is – it's constantly trying to find that new creative idea. It's, mm. you know, you see so many incredible innovations. You see so many different things that are doing and what's going to be that latest thing and what's going to be the idea. And you have this idea and you're really passionate about it. But even in my career, you know, maybe the reason I love baseball so much as well is that if I get 10% of my stuff greenlit, I'm hugely successful. 10%. Mm. That means 9% of my time. Yeah. I am wasting right. my time. Yes. And these yes. are ideas. I'm really, I'm like, I, I'm interested in this. Why aren't you interested in this? And exactly. so I'm still trying to find what's going to pique that creativity. What's going to be the thing that is going to make you that you right. think it's going to be the next hit. Yeah. Well, I mean, building on that point, I mean, I'll just tell you a personal story. So my company, Crua Studio, which produces this podcast, Not Real Art, we are developing some arts related documentaries, right? One of the projects, which was brought to me by a friend of mine who is a Steinway musician, he's a professional pianist, classically trained, yet his bread and butter comes from being a gigging, touring pianist, been on tour with you know Madonna and Christina Aguilera and whatever. And he's of Haitian descent, his name is Ricky Peugeot, but also having that classically trained background, he recently, over his many years came to realize that there were these incredibly brilliant genius composers of color, black composers who were contemporaries of Mozart, Beethoven, Bach, what have you, who have been whitewashed, who have been lost to history. 
at least in terms of Western classical music. And so he wants to shine a light on these geniuses who have been lost to history, right? Mm -hmm. And so we've teamed up to collaborate on this project and uh, we've been pitching it around town. And it's absolutely, of course, I'm bias, but I think objectively, it is absolutely the right story at the right time when you think about so much of what's happening in the cultural zeitgeist right now in terms of artists of color and just people of color and what have you. We were out to a company I won't mention if I told them, you would know. And we were pitching it to, by the way, I should say, all black executives who actually came back and said, you know what, too niche, too niche. And I was like, what? You know, and this gets this gets to your point. I mean, you can be an Emmy award winning studio. You can have 100 great ideas and only 10 of them, 90 of them get passed, but 10 of them and you're successful. I mean, the, it's just it's just the riskiest business, man. Yeah. And you want to go in and you want to slap around some people and just be like, <laughs> exactly. you know, God, why don't you see this? This is going to be the best thing ever. And then you go back and you go, well, why? Why do they think it's too niche? Why do they think it's too this? And then you kind of say, well, wait a minute, hold on a second. Or is there another avenue? Are you going to hustle and see if you can find another avenue? Well, by the way, this is, but see, okay, so you and I can riff on this a little bit because we have a similar background going all the way back to our days at Portfolio and Equip because having worked in what we'll call advertising, marketing, design for brands, consumer brands in that game, you often win a project because A, you have a world-class agency who's done some credible, relevant work. You know, it's in the marketplace. So you have a track record. Then you go in and you so you pitch your capabilities. It's like, oh, this is what we've done. This is who we are. But oh, okay, so okay, fine. You've cleared that hurdle. We're gonna give you a brief to respond to with a proposal. You write up the proposal. Assuming you win the proposal, then you embark upon this journey of discovery to solve the problem and figure out what the solution is or figure out what the story is. In Hollywood or entertainment, it is so interesting because that is so not how they do it. <laughs> it is it is like you have to go in with every I dotted and T crossed. It's like, no, no, this is the story we're telling. This is how we're going to tell it. Now, it might change a hundred times between selling it and actually distributing it. But to sell it, you have to come across as if you know every specific angle, every I dotted, every T crossed. And it's been such an interesting thing to observe because that's tough. You know, it's tough. It's not like, oh, let's just agree on a concept. Let's agree on the objective. Let's agree on on where we want to go. No, 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 no. We actually need to define the map. Yeah. In the old days, 20 years ago, 30 years ago, yeah, you could go in and say, I have a concept and the commissioners would trust you. But yeah, yeah there's just too much money in the game now. It's just, right, there's just right. too much at stake. And so you've got to have, like you said, everything lined up and you have to think about, okay, so if you bring it to client A, Client A's audience base is like X, Y, Z. So ergo, you need to put things in that you know can help market this to X, Y, Z and make it easier for your marketing and press team to go out and advertise it. So it's all part of it. And you can have the greatest idea in the world, but if you can't explain it in less than two or three sentences, and I'm talking about concise sentences, not yeah. run-on sentences. Boy, <laughs> right, do I get right, that. Right, it's so right, funny. Right. I'm like, they're like, it's three sentences. I'm like, yeah, but it's two paragraphs long. This is not three <laughs> right. sentences. No, you've got to just, you know, you've just got to do this. And so you've got to be able to go in and kind of narrow it down. You've got to be yeah. able to say, this is what it's about. So like shape of water. Woman falls in love with a fish. There you go. It's here's your promise. Here's, <laughs> yeah, that's right. what it is. You know, that's your Wait, promise. a woman what? <laughs> yeah, exactly. yeah, exactly. What are you talking about? That sounds insane. Woman falls in love with a fish. Okay, you know. Coda, beautiful coming of age story and a deaf right. family. Yeah. Really, it's kind of right. this. So you've got right. to kind of bring all that to the table too and make it clear to them and sell to them why they have to do that. And so if you're part creative, part salesperson, part improv artist, part <laughs> like cult devotee praying to the gods of dear God, please get this greenlit, you know, et cetera. You're just trying to do that. And again, a lot of our work we do is sharks. What hasn't been done with sharks? Dear God, who the fuck knows at this point? Right? It's like, let's find a new angle. What's a new angle I can do with sharks? You know, never in my wildest dreams did someone say to me, you're going to be an expert and do over 30 shark shows in your career. 
No. (laughs) (laughs) But isn't that the beauty of it? It's like you sometimes you just don't see the stuff come in. And and that's the magic. And by the way, I think we're both so so fortunate. And it's a gift at the end of the day, right, that we're still we've managed to live lives that we're still curious. We're still interested. We're still engaged. We're still fascinated. We're not bored. Yeah. We might be pissed off and frustrated for different reasons, but, but you know, we wake up every day excited to go to work and what a gift that is as a creative professional. I am so thankful what I do. If I did what my husband did, oh dear God, it would have been <laughs> But we need those people too. God bless them. We do need those people. Don't get me wrong. I need, you know, he's great at what he does. So yeah, no, not Exactly. Well, Shannon, I tell you what, I am so grateful for this time together. Thank you for coming and sharing and talking about your journey and your work and your accomplishments and sharing. I know people listening right now are really going to be inspired and take away some very valuable insights today through this conversation. Thank you for coming on. I'm happy to be here. And let me just say, you were one of my favorite people in the world, Scott. You always have been one of my favorite people in the world and stuff. I bring you up to friends and family who were like, oh, we remember Scott. He was a delight. (laughs) You are one of my favorite, favorite people because you're honest and you're true and you're real. Yeah. Well, thank you for that. And you and I feel the same about you. And I mean, it's like, I'll never forget the day. I knew we had a connection. I was running late for a paycheck. It was payday. And you're like, I'm just going to tape it behind the painting on the wall. <laughs> you know, it was yeah, like, you know, I came no in the problem. office. No one's there. You're like, just come in. It'll be behind the wall. And I was like, oh, she really trusts me. Like, okay, cool. You know, this yeah, is get great. the man his money. You need to get the man his hard, hard earning money. Absolutely. Absolutely. Again, oh, man. 26 years old. Batshit crazy, Scott. Absolutely. Batshit crazy. crazy. My God. That was 1994 or five. I think we met. And, Something uh, like that. <laughs> crazy. But who's counting? Who's counting? All right, my friend, listen, we're going to sign off. Don't go anywhere. Okay. Cheers. Thanks for listening to the Not Real Art Podcast. Please make sure to like this episode, write a review, and share with your friends on social. Also, remember to subscribe so you get all of our new episodes. Not Real Art is produced by Crew West Studios in Los Angeles. Our theme music was created by Ricky Peugeot and Desi DeLauro from the band Parlor Social. Not Real Art is created by We Edit Podcast and hosted by Captivate. Thanks again for listening to Not Real Art. We'll be back soon with another inspiring episode celebrating creative culture and the artists who make it.